Well, as I look out at all the white chairs here this morning, I feel like I'm performing a wedding. So I should begin by saying, dear friends and family, we're gathered here today for a most joyous occasion to join together this man and woman in Christian marriage. No, we're not going to be doing that. But uh, after this service, this will be the last time you see these white chairs if everything goes as accomplished. So if you're able to, when our service ends, I'm going to ask that if you have kids that you need to pick up, you certainly do that first. But others who are able, if you'll just gather over here at the organ post-service, our facilities director, Brett Jenkins, will be there, and he will give you instructions on how we're going to stack and move things out of here. Black chairs go to certain rooms. White chairs go back to the uh, place that we rented them from. But we have to have this room completely empty because tomorrow morning they're bringing in the new chairs and beginning to install them. So next Sunday... Uh, If all goes as planned, you'll be sitting in our permanent seat. So, again, very thankful for all that has happened to this point. Thank you for all of your patience with the process, your gifts that have allowed it to happen. Uh, But we're excited about that, and many hands will make light work. Well, as as we're talking about the weeks to come, I want to remind you that on Good Friday, we will not be having our services here in this 410 sanctuary. Instead, we're going to be out at our Stone Oak location. And the reason for that is originally they were planning on to be installing seats all the way through Good Friday. And so we're hoping that they'll be done in advance. But regardless, we're going to be out at 1300 Evans Road out there right next door to Barbara Bush Middle School at our satellite location, our multi-site campus out at Stone Oak. So you see the services will be at 436 and 730 p.m. So we invite you to come out there for Good Friday to worship with our Stone Oak Uh, part of our congregation. Well, speaking of joyous occasions, today we come to the end of our study in the Gospel of Luke. And for 76 Sundays, if you've been counting, 76 Sundays, we have walked through the greatest story ever told. As we have looked through the Gospel of Luke, we have covered from Christmas to Easter. In fact, we began before Christmas with the angelic announcement of the forerunner of the Messiah that would be born, John the Baptist, and then of the Messiah who would come. And we saw uh, the miraculous conception as the Holy Spirit conceived the God-man, Jesus Christ. We talked about his birth. We looked at his, uh, his life, the messages he taught, the miracles he did. We came to the end of his life as Jesus was crucified on a cross. The promised Messiah came to pay the penalty of death as he went to the cross and died. For your sins and mine. We saw the glorious story of the resurrection, which we will be uh, celebrating just in two Sundays again at Easter. Uh, So, how do you end the greatest story ever told? How do you bring the Gospel of Luke to a close? Well, I invite you to look with me now at Luke chapter 24, where Luke brings this Gospel to a close in Luke 24, verses 44 through 53. Now, Jesus said to them, These are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you. And all the things that are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And he said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead the third day. And that repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. 
You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending forth the promise of my Father upon you. But you are to stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. And he led them out as far as Bethany. And he lifted up his hands and he blessed them. While he was blessing them, he parted from them and he was carried up into heaven. And they, after worshiping him, returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple praising God. That's a pretty cool way to bring things to a close, right? You see Jesus ascending up into heaven. And, and then it says uh, he, he, he rises into the clouds. Now, if you were Luke writing this, wouldn't you kind of linger there a little longer? Wouldn't you describe it in detail and just kind of tell more of, of what that, that moment was like? But, but rather than, than doing that, he says they saw him ascend, and then they sang a closing song of worship before they left. Now, I love singing the closing song of worship before we leave, but is... Is that really how the story ends? Now, if, if that's what you think, how the story ends, I think you missed something. You know, have you been to the movies lately? Uh, maybe the Marvel series? And, and you know that when the movie ends and the credits are rolling, in the, in the old days, people would just get up and, and run out of the theater. That was, you didn't stay and, and read all the names, but you know you stay and you watch through the credits now, right? Why? Because there's a clip coming, right? There, there's a preview of what's happening next. And if you get up and leave, then you don't really know what, what the next part of the story is going to be. And, and as we look at what Luke wrote here, did, did you catch the clip of what's coming? Look again at Luke twenty four forty nine. He said, And behold, I am sending forth the promise of my Father uh, upon you, but you are to stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. You see, Jesus says there's something more. There's something coming, something that God has promised to you. The story doesn't end here at the end of Luke. In fact, Luke is just the introduction. For 76 weeks, we have walked through the introduction. Because as soon as Luke put the period on the last sentence in the Gospel of Luke, he reached over and he took out a a blank piece of parchment and he unrolled it and he began to write the next chapter. To see what the next chapter is, I invite you to turn over two books in your Bible to the book of Acts. You go beyond the Gospels and the next book in the Bible that you find is Acts. And as you look at Acts 1.1, there Luke says, the first account I composed Theophilus. Do you remember Theophilus? Now, it's been a while, but if you look back at Luke 1.3, you'll remember that we saw Luke wrote to this man named Theophilus. He called him the most excellent Theophilus, which meant that he was a high Roman official. This was a, a title of his. Uh, and here in Acts 1.5, Luke says, the first account, that is the gospel of Luke, I composed Theophilus about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up to heaven. After he had, by the Holy Spirit, given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen. To these he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. Gathering them together, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for, the, for what the Father had promised, which he said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. 
Now, if you're thinking, well, this must mean the next series we're going to begin is in the book of Acts, uh, we actually covered Acts back in November of 2015. So if you want to see the next chapter and you were not here in 2015 or you need a reminder of what we went through, you can go home, log into waysidechapel.org, go to the sermon sections, and you can pick up the next part of the story this afternoon. But as you look at what he writes here, when it says, what, when, when we talk about what happens next, I, I don't want you to miss what the title of this book is. It's called the book of Acts. Acts, A-C-T-S. So what that reminds us is that Christianity is not an armchair exercise. It doesn't mean we sit back, we open the Bible, we kind of read the story, and we relax in a cozy chair. Rather, it requires action, action on our part, uh, to go out and share our faith just as those in the early church were doing. Now, in terms of going out and sharing their faith, I want you to remember what we saw about the disciples last time. They were hiding in an upper room behind locked doors. They were in fear. Even when Jesus came into the room and appeared to them, as the resurrection appearances were taking place, he stood in their midst, he he was there with them, but they were still confused and scared even after seeing the resurrected Lord. So what is it that made them go out into the streets? What is it that caused them to go and be the witnesses that they were commissioned to be? to face suffering and and even martyrdom, as many of them were killed. Well, it was the gift of the Holy Spirit that, that we're reading about here. Now, before the Holy Spirit could come, Jesus has to leave the earth. He told them that back in John 16, 7. There he said, but I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And so here in Acts 1, 4 through 5, as well as at the end of Luke, as Jesus gathers the disciples together, he, he commands them, it says in Acts 1, 4 through 5, not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father has promised, which he said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. What does this mean to baptize somebody? You've probably been here on a Sunday where just under the cross, you know, we have a baptistry and you'll see people come down and they they profess that they're a believer in Jesus Christ and they say they want to live their life as a disciple for him. And then we baptize them, we immerse them in water and you'll hear us say something like buried in the likeness of his death, raised in newness of life. And that's called a baptism. Now, the word baptize means to dip or immerse. It speaks in 1 Corinthians 10, 1 through 2, of uniting with. That's why we say you've been buried in the likeness of his death and raised in newness of life. It's not the water that washes away our sins. That was already done at the cross. When you place your faith and trust in Jesus, it was his shed blood that saved you. Baptism is this identification and it's also this, this overflowing. The word means to deluge with. If you were out this morning when the, the storms were at their peak, you know the water was flowing, it was rising. Uh, there were road areas that were covered and flooding. And so we had a picture of just this outpouring this morning of water. And for the believer, there is this outpouring of the Holy Spirit that Jesus says is coming to you. Now, in this passage in Acts, we see that the, there's this, the, the three persons of the Trinity at work. Now, the Trinity is a big theological term that describes the mystery of the relationship where God is one, 
but he is equal in nature and distinct in role and relationship with three persons. You have God the Father in heaven who is the one who orchestrates salvation. Jesus Christ was the Son of God taking on flesh and blood and walking among us and ultimately going to the cross to purchase our salvation. And then the Holy Spirit is the one who applies salvation to us and he guides and empowers us as believers to live our lives for him. And as Jesus tells them here, the Holy Spirit is coming, it was fulfilled at Pentecost. You might remember when we were looking at Luke 23, 26, as we talked about Simon of Cyrene, the the man who was pressed into service to carry the cross of Jesus, we saw that the word Pentecost means 50, and it spoke of the feast 50 days after Passover. And how Simon and the other Jewish men were required to be in Jerusalem for Passover as well as Pentecost. So he would have been among them as Peter preached this sermon uh, at Pentecost about the resurrected Lord. And it it tells us there that, that on that day thousands came to faith in Jesus. The Holy Spirit was poured out on all who became believers. And as the Holy Spirit was being poured out, it, it pointed to the Old Testament prophecies of Joel that spoke of the day of the Lord and the coming of the kingdom. And this is why here in Acts 1.6 we're told, so when they had come together, they were asking Jesus, saying, Lord, is it at this time you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? You should remember that as, as Luke is writing this gospel, Rome is in power. Israel is under this foreign occupying force. As we saw all throughout Luke, the hope of the people was that the Messiah would come and overthrow the Romans. It's why it's what we're going to celebrate next week at Palm Sunday is Jesus made his triumphal entry into the city. The people were shouting, Hosanna, a word that means save now. And they were like, this is the Messiah. He's coming. He's going to overthrow Rome. The kingdom is going to come. Uh, and they were all excited about what was going to happen. But then suddenly their hopes were crushed. Because Jesus died on a Roman cross. He didn't overthrow the Romans. He was killed. And so they all said, we thought he was the Messiah. I guess we missed it. I guess we were wrong. But then Jesus rose from the dead three days later. And they all said, whoa, that was great, God. We didn't see that one coming. I know the scriptures and you, Jesus, even told us you would die and rise from the dead three days later. But we thought it was over when you were dead. But now that you've come back to life and you've conquered sin and death and Satan, well, now we know for sure the kingdom's coming. I mean, if you can crush death, well, then it's going to be no big deal for you to overthrow the Romans. So they're like, this is it. The kingdom is here. And that's why they say, Lord, is it at this time that you're restoring the kingdom to Israel? Well, look at how Jesus responds in Acts 1, 7 through 8. It's not for you to know the times or the epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest parts of the earth. This, this, there are two different Greek words here. One that is translated as, as times is chronos. It speaks of a duration of time. The other one is kairos. And it speaks of a, both the length of time as well as the kinds of times. 
We've preached sermons before on dispensations and how God works in different ways at different times. And and this is what's being talked about here. Jesus tells the disciples, look, God is at work in ways that you don't understand, not only in in time, but in, in, in ways he's operating at different. And he says, it's not for you to know all these things. Now, this isn't God trying to crush our curiosity God isn't saying, well, don't study uh, eschatology, the end times. He's revealed those things for us. But what he's telling us here is our focus doesn't need to be so much on the future kingdom as much as we need to be focused on what we are to be doing right now. Right now in the present time where we're to be accomplishing the king's business of sharing the gospel in Acts 1.8, the, the Greek text begins with something called a connective contrastive. And what that simply means is it's showing Jesus is refocusing them from what they're thinking about to what they're to be about. Instead of what they're thinking about, he says, this is what I want you to be about right now. Their primary concern, he says, is not about political power that comes with the restoration of an earthly kingdom. He says, rather, they should be focusing on the spiritual power that is going to come through God's Holy Spirit, which will enable them to accomplish the Father's purpose of sharing the good news of the gospel. Jesus says in Luke twenty four forty nine, And behold, I am sending forth the promise of my Father upon you, but you are to stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. This, this power that they're to receive is to fulfill the commission that God has given. As Jesus said, go and share the good news of the gospel. He says there in Luke, uh, in verses 47 through 48, they would be witnesses of the forgiveness of sins that came through Jesus Christ. You know, when it comes to power, it can be used in different ways. I don't know if you've thought about this, but power can be uh, something that is explosive. It can be released explosively or it can be harnessed. So you can unleash it or you can harness it. Think about having a gas can with 10 gallons of gas in it. Now, don't ever do this. uh, But if you pour gasoline out to light a fire, I know some have tried that before. And only by the grace of God are you probably still here. Because if you you try to light like a big fire uh, with gas, what happens to it? It explodes. Of course, you don't know that from personal experience. You've just seen you know, that on YouTube or something, right? It will explode. You don't light uh, gasoline on fire like that. People try, and it's not a good idea, okay? Not that I know that from personal experience. <laughs> the other way you can use 10 gallons of gas is you can pour it in a gas, uh, in a, into the gas tank of a car, and it can be harnessed where it is released a little bit at a time to drive the the machinery that moves the car and people and things for hundreds and hundreds of miles. And so in terms of the power that comes with the Holy Spirit, some people seek this explosive experience. We want the Holy Spirit to fall like he did in the book of Acts where it says he came down as tongues of fire and he rested on people. And, and too many Christians are saying, I want, I want this experience all the time of the Holy Spirit. And while God can and does act in those ways at times, what he says is the power that I'm giving to you is more for the day-to-day living of the Christian life. It's to be accomplishing the purpose that I've called you to be my witnesses, and it's for you as you go through life. God's Spirit can work in spectacular ways, but also in quiet ways, where He helps us in our daily walk. 
think of the story of a, a young mom who, who was making a bed one day, and she had her two daughters. They were aged three and four. And some of you know when your kids come into the room, if you're trying to make a bed with a three- and four-year-old, uh, they, they, they want to help you, but they kind of you know, prolong the process. And this is what happened is this mom says they were, they were playing in the blankets and the bedspread as she was trying to change the sheet. And she said, my daughter Mary shouted to her sister, jump into the Holy Spirit, Becky, jump into the Holy Spirit. And, and the mom, you know, was kind of confused. She got the girls off the bed, finally got it made. And she was relating the story later that night to her husband. And she said, I don't understand what she was talking about. And, and the husband smiled and said, oh, honey, don't you remember uh, the kids were at the Backyard Bible Club this past week, and there they were taught that the, the Holy Spirit is our comforter. <laughs> and this, this young mom said, what a beautiful picture that's given me of the work of the Holy Spirit. We call a bedspread a comforter. And she says, now I think of of the work of the Holy Spirit as he comforts me in those times where I'm struggling. And, you know, that's one of the reasons God has given us the gift of the Holy Spirit. The Bible tells us that God's peace that passes all understanding can surround us. And that is one of the the ministries, one of the roles of the Holy Spirit in the life of a believer. Now, the, the Holy Spirit is also there to help us in other ways. In those times where we don't understand what is God, what God is doing or even how to talk to him. You can read in Romans 8.26 where it tells us, And in the same way the Spirit also helps our weakness. For we do not know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for our own understanding. Have you ever been in a place where you, you know you need God's help, but you don't even know what to say? You're flat on your back, you're staring straight up, you, you can't even choke out the words, you can't put together a cognizant thought. God hasn't abandoned you. He knows you. He knows your need. And it says in those moments, the Holy Spirit is interceding, going before the Father for us with words that we can't even understand. We're not alone in those moments. The Holy Spirit is also God's guarantee to us as believers that we're known by God and that we belong to him. If you read Ephesians chapter 1, verses 13 through 14, tell us, In him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise. Remember, Luke is talking about the spirit of promise. So Ephesians says, when you've come to faith in Christ, the Holy Spirit is the one who seals us. He he goes on and says, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. The Greek word used for pledge there as it speaks of the Holy Spirit is arabon. And in this word arabon was used of a down payment or earnest money that was given to secure a purchase. Now, when, when it comes to earnest money, the original meaning was much stronger than the way we use it in our day. If you've ever gone to buy a house, you know that uh, you'll put down earnest money on a contract. And so what you're saying is, I want to hold the option to buy this house. And if you back out of the contract, you forfeit your earnest money. So you can, you can say, I, I want to fulfill this contract, but there's a way out. It just has a penalty clause for you. Well, in terms of the, the earnest, the down payment of the Holy Spirit, who, who is this, this one who secures 
uh, it, it's, it's not like that the way we use it today. In our day, it's a small percentage that we say, well, if I lose it, it hurts, but it, you know, it, it frees me from the obligation of the full contract. But in Jesus' day, this word was used to describe a pledge that guaranteed the completion that guaranteed the completion of the process. It was not something that could be revoked. And when it comes to our salvation, the Bible tells us about the process of how we're saved in Romans chapter 8. In Romans eight twenty nine through 30, it says, In whom he predestined. This is speaking of people who become believers. The Bible is clear that God is the one who draws all men and women to himself. So it says, Whom God predestined, these he also called. And whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. So this is the process of our salvation. God is the one who draws us to himself. When it says we're justified, it speaks of what Jesus did on the cross. Earlier in Luke, we talked about this process of justification where we are declared righteous. Where what Jesus did for us is applied to our account and so in John 19.30, it's where Jesus Christ, as he died on the cross, said, paid in full. Remember, to teleste means uh, paid in full. As you read John 19.30, it says, Jesus said, it is finished. He said, I've paid the penalty of death for you. I've closed the account for all who come to faith in me. And as you receive the gift of God's grace, what his son did for you and me on the cross, it says we are justified. We are declared righteous. Now, that's when we're saved. And as we live our life theologically, the Bible says we are sanctified. This is the process of growing in Christ's likeness. And when we get to the end of our life, there is a point where we are taken home to be with the Lord in heaven. 2 Corinthians 5.8 says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And as you go into heaven, as you go into the presence of God, you are glorified. That's the, the big theological word here. And glorified means that you are made perfect. Your sin nature is eradicated. You are made in, per, in the, the perfection you will be in for all eternity. And so as you look at the process here, uh, there is this, this process where the Holy Spirit serves as the arabon or the pledge. And it's not saying there's more that has to be paid. Remember, Jesus said it is finished, paid in full. But when the Holy Spirit is given as our pledge, this, this securing of the contract Uh, The word literally means the assurance that the relationship will be finalized. The assurance that the relationship will be finalized. Remember what we saw in Romans 8, 29 through 30. And whom he predestined, these he called. And whom he called, these he justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. God says, I'm guaranteeing that when the process begins, it will be completed. You will be perfected in heaven. This is why this word Arabon later came to be used to describe an engagement ring. An engagement ring. 32 years ago, I got down on my knee in front of my uh, wife-to-be, Kim, and I said, will you marry me? And I pulled out an engagement ring and I slipped it on her finger when she said yes. That was an Arabon, a pledge of a commitment that I was saying, I want to spend the rest of my life with you. Now, in human terms, men and women are fallible. We're broken. We're sinful. We sometimes break our pledges. 
There are engagements that never make it to the altar where the marriage takes place. There are marriages that fall apart. But when it comes to God being our engagement ring, he is perfect. He will never break the covenant that he has made. And so when it says that we are given the Holy Spirit as this pledge, this sealing, it is a way where he, he, he says, you belong to me. As he seals us, he, it's God's guarantee we are his now and for all eternity. As you think in terms of eternity, as you look ahead to where we are and, and where we will one day go, um, if you were to die today, where would you go? Can you say with 100% assurance that if you were to die today and you got to the gate of heaven and God said, why should I let you in, that you would be welcomed home into heaven? What would you say to God? Now, you may be thinking, well, you know, I lived a pretty good life. I was here in church today. I tell God I, you know, do those things. I give money sometimes to his work. I try to Try to live my life in a way that makes the world better on and on. And while all of those are good things, and as a believer, as you walk with God, that's that sanctification process. That's not how we get into heaven. Because the Bible is very clear that none of us are good enough. What the Bible tells us in Romans 3.10 is there is none righteous, no, not one. Not Roger Poopart is the pastor in the pulpit, not you sitting in the place where you are today. And so the Bible says in Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. This word sin is an archery term. If I were to put a a target up here, an archery target with a bullseye and all the rings, and I were to give you 100 arrows, and I were to say, I want you to shoot 100 arrows at the target. And as you did, you got 99 of the arrows right there in the bullseye. And just one of them was just outside of that center bullseye. What would you say about that kind of shooting? I'd say it's pretty good. I'd say that's great shooting. But as the judge walked up and graded your target, what he would write on your target is you sinned. The word that is used for sin literally means to miss the mark. He would say you missed the mark. You didn't get a hundred out of a hundred arrows in the bullseye. You were less than perfect. And that's why Romans three twenty three says, For all have sinned and fallen short of the standard of God. God's standard is perfection. And he says, for you or, or me to earn our way into heaven, we have to be perfect. Never, ever once doing anything wrong. As you think about your life, have you ever sinned? Have you ever told a lie? Have you ever cussed? Have you ever taken a cookie when your mom told you not to? I mean, what, what is it you've done in your life where you disobeyed? Because, see, that's what sin is. It's where we disobey God. It's where we don't do what he tells us. And every one of us is a sinner. There's none righteous, no, not one. And because of that, we have a problem. Because Romans 6.23 tells us the wages of sin is death. See, wages are what we earn. We don't earn our way into heaven. What we earn by how we live our life is separation from God for all eternity. The wages of sin is death. That's why Jesus went to the cross and he died. He had to pay the penalty of death that you and I owed for our sins. And it's why the good news of the gospel, Romans 6.23 says, The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. See, God says you don't get to me by what you do. You get to me by what my son did as he died on the cross to cover your sin and mine. And he says, when you receive my son's payment in your place, your account is paid in full. 
It's closed. You're justified. You're declared positionally righteous because of what my son did for you, not what you did. And if you're here today and you've never received God's gift of grace, I invite you to do so. As you read Romans 10, 9, it says, If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, then you will be saved. You will be saved. He says, My son's payment will be applied to your account. It will be closed, paid in full. And there is a day coming where you will be with me in heaven for all eternity because of what my son did. That's why it's called the good news of the gospel. It's a gift of grace, not what we've done. It's why Ephesians 2, 8, 9 tells you, for by grace you've been saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one should boast. So if you're here today and you've never received that gift of grace, I invite you to do so today. To turn to Jesus and say, I recognize that I'm a sinner. I've made mistakes in my life. And I thank you, God, that you loved me so much that you left your throne in heaven and you came to earth. You took my place, going to the cross, dying to pay that penalty of death for my sin. And I believe you're who you said you were. When you died on the cross, you proved it by conquering sin and death. You rose from the dead three days later, showing you were indeed the promised Messiah, the Son of God. And I accept your death and your payment in my place. As you do so, the Bible says you will be saved. John 1.12 says, But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. And he invites you to receive that gift of grace today. Now for the rest of us who have taken that step of faith, we're saved. But we're not saved to sit. We're saved to go and share the good news of the gospel. It's why the gift of the Holy Spirit was given to us. As we begin today, I open my message with a question. How do you end the greatest story ever told? And the answer is you don't. It keeps going. It kept going in the first century through the book of Acts as the first believers became witnesses and the gospel was spread and the church grew and and the good news continues even in our day here in San Antonio, Texas today. And we are a part of the continuing story because as believers in Jesus Christ who have been given the gift of the Holy Spirit, he calls on us to walk out of these doors in a few moments to go into the world and share the good news of the gospel, to go back to our neighborhoods, to our homes, to the school classrooms where you are at school or at college, to the military base where you work, to the cubicles or the corner offices where you are, to the delivery trucks or the service vehicles that you drive. And he says, wherever you are, I am with you. My Holy Spirit is in you, and he is there to help you spread the good news of the gospel. So as we prepare to end today, I want you to look at your life and ask yourself, first and foremost, do you know Jesus Christ as your personal Savior? And if you've never received him, I invite you to accept God's gift of grace to you. And for the rest of us who have received him, he calls on us to be his witnesses into the world as we leave here today. Will you join me, please, as we go to the Lord in prayer? Father God, we thank you for the gift of your son. Jesus, we thank you for coming and going to the cross to die to pay the penalty of death we owed for our sins. Holy Spirit, we thank you for not only filling and indwelling us, 
and empowering us to share the good news, but also for empowering men like Luke to guide them in the writing of this gospel that we've spent 76 weeks looking through and learning about your great love. As we remember, God, today, your love for us, so we remember this coming Good Friday, how much you loved us as you went to the cross and gave your life. We thank you. As we look forward to celebrating your victory over sin, death, and Satan as we gather on Easter. Easter Sunday to celebrate your resurrection. As we think of what you recorded for us, Luke, of the angels there at the tomb that first Easter morning when the women came and you said to them, Why do you seek the living one among the dead? He is not here, but he is risen, just as he said. Father, as those who have read the story, as those who have believed the truth of your word, as those who have been indwelt and sealed by you, Holy Spirit, would we leave here today as men and women, boys and girls, who go into the world with the good news of the gospel, sharing the news that the tomb was empty, that you conquered sin and death. We thank you, God, for your great gift of new and eternal life. It's in the name of our precious Savior, Jesus Christ, that we pray and thank you. Amen.